to episode 14 of the Pedal Steel Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dast, and as promised, we've got part two of our interview with Paul Franklin. A couple topics we talked about are the new generation of steel players, um, how to use steel in different styles and different contexts, the difference between a lick and a phrase and how to think about that. Actually, we talked a lot about how to think <laughs> in general, how to think about playing steel. It's it's a, a big, deep topic, and it's it's hard to uh, wrap your head around, but uh, that's what we tried to do in this one. And uh, I also should mention, we talked a fair amount about an exercise that is part of the Paul Franklin method called the scale permutations. And since that that's not publicly available, you know, if you're not a, a member of the course, um, you don't have access to that. I just kind of wanted to explain briefly what that is. It's this set of 24 exercises over four strings that are basically just... Uh, every possible permutation of, you know, where to start and where to end a four-note phrase. Um, and so that, that's kind of all that is. It's a simple exercise, but there's a lot there if you if you work on it. <laughs> um, we also talked a fair amount about steel guitar education and, and where it's going and, and where it's come from. Uh, I did want to mention, uh, before I get into the interview itself, um, a lot of the topics and specific things that we talk about, including specific songs and uh, and players and brands and things like that. If you look in the show notes, which is at pedalsteelpodcast.wordpress.com, or on most uh, podcast apps, if you actually look in the show description, you can see all those links there. So I have links to uh, as much stuff as it seemed reasonable to put. (laughs) Okay, without further ado, here is part two of the interview with Paul Franklin. Behind the Bar. Uh, To me, it's exciting because it's going to go somewhere, probably nowhere that any of us can predict, Yeah, but uh, it's certainly not going to die. It's just, there's too much and there's so much interest. I, I played with the, you know, Monday nights with the time jumpers and we're an old Western swing band, but there are kids coming in from, you know, we have a great music school in Belmont and also MTSU has gotten really good. And we have students coming in all the time and I'm meeting guitar players and keyboard players that are just taking up the instrument and they're going, Oh, this is great. You know, and they're, and they're seeing me, I, you know, probably somebody told them to go see this old man that plays Monday night, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 you know, they see me and then, but they, they're, they're, they've looked at my album credits for whatever reason. And so they, they know that I'm not just that. And then they're asking me these questions. And what I'm really, that just warms my heart is that they're, they're all seeing a path. Well, I want to use this in my, you know, I'm, some of them will say I'm into hip hop or I'm, and I'm going, see, this is great because they're not attached to any of the history of the instrument. They just think the instrument's cool. Yeah. You know? And and so so I that's why I think it's not the instrument, you know, being held back by anyone. It's the it's the just the people that sit behind it and the, and their thought processes and, and uh you know, and and uh that's that's kind of uh, you know, getting full circle back to the course. That's why I'm excited to share. My, my experiences, you know, that's what this course for me is, you know, and it's a way to keep on tying it together because I want to, you know, it's probably going to take me two or three years totally to get, you know, to explain all the things like, uh, you know, I had a lesson, uh, an eye-opening lesson from a saxophone player and uh, it was great. And, and, and uh, anyway, he asked me, and I'm going to do a video on this, but I'm going to give you a preview of it. All right. He asked me to... Um, Play me a lick, you know, and after he had sat there and played and impressed me, like, wouldn't believe it, and it, it intimidated me. And then, so I ripped off, I thought, well, let me, let me give him a cool lick. And I wouldn't dare play him one of mine, so I played him one of Buddy's. I played the ending to Raising the Dickens. But anyway, I played him that lick, and uh, he looked at me and he says, I didn't hear a lick. And I, I do, I'm kind of dumbfounded, so I ripped off another one, and he said, no, I didn't hear a lick. And now he had me dumbfounded. So what he had done is the best lesson I've ever had in my life because he, he took away any preconceived 
notion of what I wanted to learn and what I was going to learn stripped me down. And now I had a question. I was ready to hear anything he said. And then he takes his saxophone and he played me the first lick I did. Hmm. And then he looked at me and said, now, he said, that's a phrase. And he said, but he said, you want to think in licks? He said, three notes. He said, here's the first part of the lick. And he goes, da-da-da. Here's your second lick, da-da-da. And then here's the next one, da-da-da. And then da-da-da. And he played it, he broke it all down like that. And he said, now, he said, that's the way to think. And that was my lesson. That was the end of my lesson. Interesting. So so it's kind of breaking things down into more bite-sized elements? Well, it's, it's breaking everything down into the most fundamental. He was a great, well-known jazz saxophonist. And uh, when I heard him play, I heard all this, you know, just endless streams of notes and, you know, just he could go and never seemed like he ever repeated himself. And what he was telling me is, see, I had, he asked me a question. He said, play me a lick. So I played him this long stream of notes and which told him, and then he gave me a second shot and I did the same thing again, which told him I didn't know how to think when I tried to improvise. In other words, once you start a lick and you play 10 notes in the same order, Uh, your mind will always play those same 10 notes in the same order. Already right there, you've got the stumbling block in your thought process. Because now your mind is, you know, it's all muscle memory. So now your mind, every time you start into this, you're going to immediately go to those next notes. Right. And it's like it follows suit in what I'm teaching, which is the emphasis on fundamentals. Right. Back to the, those scale permutations, even. Yeah, that's exactly. Because those permutations are everything that you will ever be faced playing. And you're going to, hopefully all the students will be so familiar with those exercises, those fingerings. And then when they, you know, a guitar player in your band or whoever teaches your line. And like, if you didn't practice those and you didn't know those and they were awkward to you, you might say, I can't play that. When the truth is you're preparing yourself. Yeah. Let me, so I, I've, I've really sort of become obsessed with these exercises. (laughs) Like I was kind of telling you before. And, uh, and I, I've tried, um, Sort of, uh, okay, so there, there's this example of, you, you ever know anyone who, like, you, you tell them, hey, catch this ball, you throw a, throw a baseball to them, and they just can't catch it. Like, they'll, they'll fumble it because they're, they're overthinking it too much, they're, they're anticipating it too much, they get nervous, and then they drop the ball. Yeah. But sometimes if you tell someone, hey, I'm going to throw this ball at you, I'm going to spin it, and I want you to watch it spin in the air and tell me which way the threads are spinning. And then... Half the time, if you throw that ball and the person's focusing on which way are the threads spinning, they'll catch it because they're not even really thinking about catching it. They're thinking about something else. They're, they're distracting their mind. So what I've been trying to do with these scale permutations, other than just focus on playing them clean and, and, and you know, uh, slowly raising the tempo and everything, is number one, I'm combining it with you've got this bar hand exercise, which you've already uh, publicly, you know, has been on the steel guitar forum for a long time. Uh-huh. And is also part of the course uh, where, you know, you're basically doing these one fret shifts and two frets and three frets. And so I'm combining these uh, scale permutations, which is a right hand exercise with this bar hand exercise so that I'm focusing on, I'm trying to focus on two things at the same time you know, Uh so that I'm trying to train my brain to be able to be distracted all the time (laughs) and to still be able to perform the the function. That's fantastic. Another thing I'm trying to do is to do this exercise at different times of day, to do it in the morning, to do it at night, to do it after lunch, (laughs) to do it when my brain is in different states and there's different lighting in the room and, you know, just to to try and be bulletproof about like being able to pull these off under any situation. And the other, and another thing is just, uh, changing sounds. I have this amp modeler thing and, you know, it's got a million presets. So I'll do one exercise and then I'll switch it to a, a sound that has heavy distortion and I'll do the next exercise and then I'll switch it to, you know, whatever, something else with an auto wah or something. Yeah. And trying to do them, do the exercises not always in order. Sometimes I'll do them backwards. Oh, yeah. Or I'll just go, uh, you know, diagonally through the, <laughs> through the exercises or whatever to try and basically 
introduce a little bit of chaos into my brain because I don't want to get into that same thing you were talking about, whereas like you start this 10 note phrase and then like, it's kind of like a, like a, a trained, uh, you know, animal in the movies where like yeah. they have to do it from point A to point B to point C, or they have to start over from zero, you know? And to me, I'm trying to drill, drill, drill these things into my brain and have yeah. them become so automatic that I don't want to think about them at all, you know? <laughs> well, you're, you're making me, uh, I'm so proud to hear that because that's the intention. Like I, I told you earlier, if you, if you're, studying how a piano, the fingerings on a piano, or like if you're, if you're improv and, and you're, you're playing patterns and, and you're going like, you don't want to sound like the guy that's running scale patterns or you're playing what they call uh improvisations, you know, where you're marking the notes of the, of course that's the patterns. And yeah. you're, and the point is, you're not going to, you don't want to go da 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 That's boring, you know, cause that's predictable. The moment I start that pattern and I go into the second part of it, you know where you're going to go. And if you know the sound of a major scale, okay, I already know where you're going before you get there. Yeah. And, and that's, that's not the way to grab a listener. And, and, and I'm not putting people down. That's the traditional way music is taught. And, but there's a simpler path. I'm the guy that studied all that. I had, I ran scales like that only to learn like you, you know, more great musicians I met, they said, Hey man, you don't want to play scale, man. You know, don't do that. I mean, I actually had because they were my friends. They said, "Don't do that, man. You're better than that." And I and at first I'm going, "What do you mean?" And they they go, "Well, you can play. You got technique. You can play anything, but don't. That's predictable. Be be unpredictable." And that's what you're. Everything you just said to me is like that's the way you mixing it up. And 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 uh, my dream and my hope for this is to provide you with all the tools. Okay, they're in front of you, but it's not to say, Brian, I want you to do just this, 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 that. And that's what I meant earlier about when, when I had the guy from Nashville telling me, you know, don't, don't, don't accept it. You know, don't, don't accept things as they are, yeah. changing them around. And so, and the more your mindset, see, that becomes your method. And that's why I call this, you know, the course, the method, that becomes your method for creativity. And as you learn, if someone introduces a series of notes that they could be from a scale, they could be from, you know, triadic uh, or, or, you know, uh, chordal uh, harmonies or whatever, it doesn't matter. It, you know, all of a sudden you're going to have this method. You're going to go, oh, I can mix it up. So all of a sudden this one little idea can turn into 20, 30 ideas. And once you get that, when it all compounds on everything that you understand about harmony and, and all that, before you know it, man, you're, you're infinite in the ways that you can interpret the same information. There's only 12 notes. Yeah. So we all have to come up with, with the method for being an individual. And that's what I'm trying to, to lay out for people. And, uh, uh, man, that's, I can't tell you any more to do than what you're doing with that. And just, uh, let that obsession carry over into everything you learn. And, and, uh, there's a, a great thing that you can do uh, in thinking, you know, and it's like the, and to me, that's what that sax player emphasizes. It's like break everything down into the most small, minute ways to visualize it, you know, including harmony and everything. Like I used to see chords as all like, well, that's a flat nine. That's a 13th. This is that, you know, now I see it. I see like major and minor chords you know, and dominant sevens. I, and some people just see it as major and minor. And, you know, that, that means that a diminishes. Diminishes is just a minor with a flat five. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's just like everything's just related. So if you break it down to the easiest way to understand it and you start adding the color tones, then you start understanding how to use it. And, and um, you know, that's, that's, uh, Every time I see a, a guy play at such, you know, what I call astronomical levels, you know, like, uh, you know, to me, musicians like Matt Rawlings and, and, uh, uh, Jimmy Cox in, in LA and, and Dean parts and all these people, the way they play and, and the things that they know, it's just, but they break things down into the most simplistic ways to view it. When you talk to them, you go, and that just goes just this. And, and it's an, 
you wait for them to give you this long, <laughs> you know, deal that's going to be the secret. And it's always just two or three notes. And it's just, that's, that's all it is. Yeah. You know, I asked Matt Rollins one time, I said, you know, he played this beautiful thing. He said, it's just shapes and shapes is what those permutations are, you know, because each one has its shape, you know, and then he'll jump over and play it, you know, out of random notes and, and he's, and and that's what he said. I just see shapes when I play. It, you know what it is? Music, I think, is, and that's why it's great and it'll last. You know, it's it was a gift to us. Uh, you know, it's it's to always keep our mind working. Yeah. But um, it's just handed. It's it, there's there's uh, probably a, an infinite way, uh, number of ways to define it. But it all leads back to the same thing. You know, there's a simple way to look at it, and then you can make it as complex and, and you know, as tedious. And, and to me, if you do that, those are the people that end up teaching at, you know, at schools, at high schools, and they know every little idiosyncrasy of why this works, and this is this, and this is that, and they can, they can talk for days, and then, you know, I end up falling asleep and, 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 and then you, but you get a guy that says, Hey, that's just this, you know? And, you know, and he opens up the whole thing. There's no wrong or right notes. There's just taste. You yeah. Know? And that's it. It's the application. It's the, it's the style. It's making it personal. Yes. And that's, that's why I really am getting into your course uh, and really focusing on the stuff that you're teaching that I consider the fundamentals uh, which is your right hand exercises, mm-hmm. especially. I mean, I'm really thinking about that a lot because the more I do that, the more freedom I feel, and the more uh, the more I feel like okay, I can I can play things now that were hard to me before that seem a little easier now. And oh, good. Beyond that, it's also uh, I think the video format is really effective because. You get a feel, number one, for uh, just your personality comes through in these videos and the way you think. And you're talking about, okay, well, when I'm working on this, I'm thinking about this. And that is so much more valuable than just, you know, notes on a page. (laughs) You know, because notes on a page don't don't tell you anything about uh, uh, the thought process, you know? Well, okay. Think about all the little nuance that goes into playing something pretty. Four notes. They're four chords. Uh, groupings and you do it and okay you got you write a slide symbol you write uh pedals down and you write all this yeah there's no music in that yeah you know there's absolutely no music and you can't when you hear now you could hear lloyd play that you could hear buddy play it you could hear john Huey. you could hear yourself me play it all of us would play it different and we'd play the same notes but what is different okay the vibrato, uh, one might strum one of the groups, one might, uh, all, how do you write that? How do you write the vibrato? One might decide, well, I got, they might all have vibrato on the same note, but one starts there slower, goes mm-hmm. faster. And, and it, all these variances, there's just no way to do it. So the, the, uh, what all of the greats have in common from within all forms of music is their ears define the process. You know, when you go to, uh, Matt told me that when uh, one of their assignments was, uh, they they would go home and it would be to transcribe. It wasn't they gave them transcriptions. It was, no, you're going to go home. Uh, they give them a piece of music. I want you to come in tomorrow and transcribe the solo. Yeah. You know, that meant you got to go and listen with your ear, you know, and in the days there was no internet, there was no time we go download it somewhere. You know, it forced, the, they were forced to learn. And, and, uh, like my, that's my, my, God bless her, Wanda Bruning. That's what she did for me. And, and I, I'm not being so, uh, by rote, you know, like forcing people I, I want everybody to, to work at their own pace, but I do want to show them the importance of, uh, committing it to memory because that's the fastest route to get great on your instrument is you got to do that and you got to, you got to memorize it. And you got to get comfortable with it. And, and there's there's a moment in time when all of a sudden, uh, I'll tell you my story. I went to when I first tried to play Donna Lee. I didn't have my copenin. This is like years before I actually learned to play it. But I tried it briefly, and it was just like 
it was everything was missing. You know, it was just too hard. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. I played all the notes, but I couldn't get it fast enough. And I thought, oh crap, I'm not going to play this. So I dropped it. And uh, and then fast forward, you know, in in the eighties, I went and got invited. David Hungate had these jams at his house, and it was Larry London and different people that would come over and play and and uh, keyboard players, you know, Dennis Burnside or Shane Keister, and then Brent Mason came over. Rob Hayek has come over and play fiddle sometimes. Just a group of us. And we played through the real book. Mm-hmm. And so, and I wanted to do this. I love it. We got over every Sunday afternoon for several months. We were doing this. And David said, hey, guys, let's, let's start giving homework assignment. Let's week, next week, let's play. And he gave a list of songs. And Donna Lee was one of them. And I go, in my mind, I go, oh, crap. <laughs> I can't play it. <laughs> That's what I thought. And so I thought, oh, okay. And then I went and sat down in it, and it was easy. Yeah, because I had done all these other things in between the first time practice. I had already gone through the permutations and stuff and practicing other things. And when I went to play, I go, wow, that's cool. It's not that hard. Because you've developed your ear and your technique. Because, well, and and I I had learned one of the tendencies that I think is human nature is when something becomes difficult. And or or it becomes tedious. In other words, you got to make yourself. Ah, I got. I just don't feel like sitting down right now. We all have those moments. I have those more than anybody. But uh, what, for whatever reason, you just it's you just walk away. It's easier to walk away and say, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that," you know, than it is to make yourself do it. But you know, what happened? What was the difference? It was that I really wanted to play these jam sessions with David. I didn't want to be the the weak link. I didn't want to be the guy that said, Hey, I can't play it. Yeah. So that was all the motivation I needed, you know, and it came easy because I knew I had to do it. And that's really what this course is for me, because I'm, I'm sure when a guy enters this course or they see it and they're, you know, Hey, give me the tab on this. Give me this, give me that. And I, you know, I do provide tab and I'll continue doing it because I see its value. I don't discount it at all. But more than that, I want those that rely on it so much, to realize that if you'll take a little extra time and actually, even if it's provided, write it down yourself, Yeah, you know, because if you do that, there's something that happens. It's like doing our timetables right back to grade school, you know, by writing them down over and over redundantly, we know them, you know, you, you don't, you don't have to second guess what's totally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm at. And that's my whole process of learning music, uh, but anyway, and I'm I'm uh, I'm so excited. Uh, there's, there's just so much to share. I just hope I live long enough to get it all out there. But <laughs> well, one of the nice things though about the course and the way it's set up is that you know you're always adding new videos, and even on the Facebook page, you know, there's a poll now. Like, hey, what, we're making some new videos. What do you guys want to hear about? And there's a, you can vote. You know. Yeah. Which I think is awesome because, like you said, with, with Jeff Newman, he was frustrated that once he put out a course, he couldn't change it. But with yours, it's like this kind of living, evolving uh, thing, you know? And I think that's really, really cool. Oh, thank you, Ben. That's what I hoped everybody would see it that way, but that's the way I feel about it. And it's like I get to correct myself. And you know what? Here's the interesting thing. What I believe today may not be what I believe 10 years from now or whatever, because I may evolve and I go, you know what? I thought a lick was eight or nine notes in a row until I had that lesson. Yeah. And then when he did it, and I go, you're right. You're right. And now that's a better way to think. And now I've got, oh, those are a bunch of little licks that I know real well. All of a sudden, I can intertwine them. You know, I, I don't have to go right from the beginning to the end. I don't have to follow a certain routine of playing those notes. I, I can vary them. And I've got the control, like those permutations. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I, I was wondering with uh, today's music, and, and this is a question to you, like, what do you feel like uh, the music now is so processed, okay? And the steel guitar, you mentioned it earlier, sine wave, and I wanted to ask you this, because that's the way PV uh, always said it was. They tested their speakers with the instrument because it's the closest to a sine wave. They tamed them up, and if they didn't blow speakers, you know, they knew they had something that could handle anything. 
so with all the processing, you know, because everything's compressed, like MP3s, the way we even music's delivered to us is is uh, not hi-fi anymore. It's so compressed to get in all these waveforms, and and uh, and the steel's such a pure, you know. It, how do you see? Uh, do you think the instrument itself? might have to change its sound or do you think it's always going to be no i don't i don't um so i'm also a recording engineer and you know i'm often involved with the production and the arranging of the songs that i also am playing steel on and there's this weird kind of thing that happens um first of all the tone of a steel guitar what comes out of the volume pedal really i think is the tone of the steel guitar you know yeah and I think that tone on its own is so inarguably beautiful <laughs> that, you know, you really can't mess it up. And what, what I find is that uh, when I'm trying to use it in a track or I'm mixing a song that has steel, especially steel that I've played, I have to reset my perspective a little bit on how loud it should be because, you know, I'm used to hearing my own steel pretty loud because, you know, when I'm tracking something in the headphones, I want to hear it nice and loud so that I can make sure my intonation and everything is good. There's no extraneous noises or anything. Yeah. And uh, more than almost any instrument I can think of, there's this real sweet spot of how loud or quiet it needs to be in the mix for it to work. And I hear a lot of mixes, even or stuff I've played on for other people, where I think, mm, it needs to be 1 dB louder. You know, like there's just... There's this magic threshold where yeah. if you get it just right, you hear the tone and you hear the emotion in the instrument. And then if you drop anywhere below that, it just sounds like this kind of like insect or something in the background. You know, like all you hear is the twang and the high end of it and you don't feel the the meat of it anymore. That's interesting. But I think that the real emotion and everything is built into the sound of, of the instrument and I think any effects or anything else you want to use on it, great. But, you know, you have to be realistic that you are changing the sound. You're not dealing with the pure sound of the instrument anymore. You're playing with effects. And that's cool. And I think for the steel guitar to move forward, I don't think that necessarily requires effects and requires different sounds. I think it really is going to be more about the playing and where it's used and how. Uh-huh. But... You know, like we were talking about before, it's because it's got this purity, this sine wave-like quality, you can do so much with it with processing that I don't think a lot of people have thought about yet because you have synthesizers. But you can take a steel guitar. I, I uh, Are you familiar with the TV show uh, Stranger Things? A uh, little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's like this kind of 80s throwback show. And the uh, the main titles, the the theme that you know comes on over the main titles is this synthesizer uh, composition. It's about a minute long. And uh, I really love the sound of that. It's all, the series is supposed to look like it takes place in the 80s. So they used all these synthesizers that were, you know, correct for that, that time period. And I, as an experiment one day when I had, you know, a little unstructured free time, I was like, man, I love, I love this show and I love this song and I want to see if I can recreate it using steel guitar as the only instrument mm -hmm. and using layers. And I did things where I pitched it down an octave. I did things where I doubled the speed of it so it could play really fast. Yeah. I did things with filter sweeps and I did all these things, even the percussion, even the, like the sound of this kick drum I used, you know, just laid my hand against the steel and hit the lowest string. And I have a 12 string. So it was it, uh -huh. you get a little bit of thump out of it. And, you know, it was more, more sonic manipulation than it was playing but when it was done i was like man i don't know if i listened to this if i would know it was a steel guitar anymore yeah you know but it, it can do things that synthesizer can't like these beautiful slides and you know all the glissandos between notes and all the bends and everything you can't do mm -hmm. so i just think you know there's all this untapped potential there yeah and it just it's just going to take the imagination of whoever the next, you know, player is to unlock it. Well, that's the reason why I asked you is I wanted to hear your take on it because your generation is is the, you know, you guys are going to drive the train. And uh that's my feeling. I mean, that's exactly what I think. I that's why I said I don't think the instrument has to change uh, earlier. And I was just curious because I don't want to dictate, you know, this is like become my life thing. I want to teach people what I know, but I don't want to dictate what they do with 
that knowledge. You know, I just want to share them. This is my life's experiences playing steel. But see, that's my experience too. I've got, that's why I put that Travis Tritt record. That's an old record. You know, it's almost 20 years old, that record. It's on the blog, actually. But anyway, I gave three examples, and, and uh, one is that thing because most people thought there was no steel on it. But I got a lot of work back in those days doing exactly what you're talking about with the instrument, camouflaging it. But then I've also done things where, you know, I use the baritone steel and things low to do it, but where it's been just me. And it's amazing what the, the instrument's so valid that it covers the complete spectrum. You know, if your imagination can go there, the instrument certainly can. Yeah. And we all know what the organ has been to rock, pop, and everything. Organ is like the glue mm-hmm. that holds the track together. You put an organ in there and it just does something. Even if you don't have it up in the mix, it's just the texture, that pure, you know, it's just, it does something to a track and to a band. And the steel guitar is country music's organ. And it ha- always has been, but just having the pad sometimes, especially when a player knows how to orchestrate his playing, where you don't just play from top to bottom, but they come in and out. And when the dynamics of the song require a lifting yeah. and release situation, and man, there's nothing like a steel guitar, just the pure sound of the instrument. And uh, I just think that it's still untapped what all it can do. And I'm just curious if, if you know, our age differences, if, if someone in your position would see it the same way, but that's where I'm at. I think it's great. I, I think I do see it the same way. I think one challenge that hopefully people are addressing is the cost of entry, you know, to get a decent instrument. Yeah. They're heavy. They're a pain to drag around. If someone can make a lighter, you know, <laughs> more, you know, something that you could throw in the overhead bin on an airplane. Yeah. I think that would be the next step into accessibility and to more people getting into the instrument. I have some thoughts on that, too. I, I agree with that. I know that there's, uh, I spoke with David Jackson and the Jackson Steel Guitars, and they're making a very economic guitar. They're getting ready to come out with their model. And I don't know what the price range is, but it's going to be reasonable. I think in modern times, and I know some people can't afford it, so this not, I don't mean this to be like, sure, oh, yeah, you make a lot of money, so that's no money to you. I don't mean to sound that way. But to me, $1,000 is not a lot of money. When you look at, if you get a synthesizer, you get, no matter what you do, you get into anything there, you just, you spend money. Yeah. And the steel guitar, because of what it is, it can never be under that. And, uh, you know, if you look at what a, a, a student model was back in the seventies, $395, well, that's about $1,500 today. Yeah. But, you know, when you compare that, though, to the, you know, you can get a, a really decent, cheap guitar these days, like an electric guitar. If you've got a kid who's, you know, seven years old or whatever. Yeah. You can go spend 100 150 bucks, get like a Squire Strat or something. And that kid can get a lot of mileage out of that before they have to upgrade. Yeah. And so I think, you know, parents are probably much more likely to say, oh, okay, here, yeah, you want to play an instrument? How about guitar? <laughs> you know, because they don't have to spend $1,000, they can spend $150, you know? I agree with that totally. I, I, I think that that's one of the issues. And I, I tell you what, the other issue has been in talking to uh, several manufacturers. I, I got involved early on. Like I, I told you, I taught with Jeff. And uh, I taught, uh, uh, Pete Drake had me tab out his, when he was going to retire, through sessions in the eighties. And, and, uh, he said, I want you to tab out my hits. And it was like, uh, you know, he stopped loving her today and, and I don't want to play house and pass me by and all those things that he played. And I did, and they never released it. You know, Rose has still got it. And, uh, but, but anyway, I, I did that for him. And, but he was, he thought David Jackson had a, he bought a synth that was the hope was to be able to play anything in this machine would tab out whatever you play. Cause nobody liked writing tablature <laughs> and that didn't work out. But all of the manufacturers, I remember Maurice Anderson talking to me. And when we had Jeff Newman with the school, every manufacturer could say, all right, cause that was the most complete way to learn. Uh, at the time, you know, but it was incomplete because Jeff would tell you it was, you know, I mean, he, he did the best he could do at the time, but he couldn't, like when I talked with him a week, I said, Jeff, we need to do this. He said, you can't do that. And I said, but, 
And like I wanted to explain what harmonized scales were because sometimes he'd put a flat seven in there and I go, well, Jeff, that's not really in there. He said, yeah, but it works. I said, yeah, it works, but they should know the difference between, yeah. you know, let know that that's one is an alteration and the other one is exactly what's the notes of the scale. And he said, I don't have time. We don't have time. We got to move on because we had a, each day we had a mission and I got it. And that's why he stopped teaching classes. Most people don't know it, but he stopped teaching classes because it was too frustrating for him because Jeff Newman really cared. Yeah. You know, but the technology wasn't there. Jeff would have been the first guy to do what I'm doing. So anyway, he thought that there needed to be a complete course. I thought that uh, David Jackson, MFA, uh, everybody that's known it, because that's the missing element. And I'm not putting myself up there, but what's not there, what there was in the 30s, there was this Oahu method. That's why you see hundreds of brands of old lap steels. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing for your students, because you may know this, maybe not. But Lloyd Green is a steel player because somebody walked up in his neighborhood and said, hey, does anybody in this home want to learn to play lap steel, Hawaiian steel? Buddy Emmons plays steel for the same reason. Happened to him. It was a mail order, complete method for learning to play the Hawaiian guitar. America was fascinated with Hawaii. There was a time when Hawaiian songs were like popular music. Harbor Lights and all those things were big hits. So we, you know, I didn't live back then. I just heard about it through the old timers. You know, Little Roy Wiggins would talk about it. And then fast forward, pedals happened. Okay, now nobody knows how to teach the thing, and that's been our problem right there. Before that, we had a whole method. And when you look at Hawaiian players and what they were able to do, they all slanted their bars. Everybody had all the technique down. Their touch was smooth as butter. And they were everywhere. You know, you'd find, oh, that's great. I ran in uh, through my years when I got on the road 17, I'd run in because you could still find guys that didn't play pedals. And when you found the guy playing Hawaiian steel, he was great because they all learned. They all learned this process. But what happened with pedals is that there was nobody to teach it. So you're basically on your own. Now, the guys that were really good with it, were the Jimmy Days and the Buddy Emmons and people like that had already mastered the Hawaiian and they switched over to pedal steel. But the ones that came right after that, there was no instruction for them. It's like a missing gap. Okay. And David knew that it needed to get out there. They put out three showbud books that first introduced the groups, you know, group one, group two, group three, group four. That's where that came in. Jeff Newman did his first instruction. Neil Flans did a instruction for show bud but to me the thing that's always held the instrument so so now if you get a cheap guitar how do you learn to play it and even one of the things that i noticed like on the forum when the reason why i put that up years ago i can say it now but uh i was always thinking that one day i'm gonna teach you know because i've always loved to teach and i feel like that's my way of giving back i feel like i have to give back the steel guitar has given me too much and, uh, and I, I love the instrument and I need, I want to know that it carries on and I want to see, you know, I want to see it get to its full potential. And so, uh, I put that bar hand exercise on that forum. I wanted to see what the response was to that. Yeah. And it still pops up. There's, I don't know what it is, 40,000, 30, 40,000 views of people, but everybody there's not one negative thing on a, on it. Yeah. And all that is, that's just something from the very beginning of my lessons, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not anything I thought of. It's just my Hawaiian teacher and people from the Oahu method, they were taught, yeah, you had to learn to move every two frets, every three frets, slant your bars, you know, that's why they're all so good. Cause they got out of the traditional positions where in pedals, see it forced everybody to, so get your right hand, I mean your left hand, because you got pedals that'll do it. Mm-hmm. So you move up to fret five, fret seven, all of a sudden we're erasing our fretboard. Right, yeah, because you've got the pedals and knee levers, they give you different positions. So like in a, a song where you may have had to do a lot of bar moves playing non-pedal, you can stay maybe within two or three frets playing pedal steel. Yeah. If it, if it goes from a, you're in a one with the pedals down and you want to go to a four minor, you just move up one fret. Right. And you hit a pedal, 
in the same groups, but you've done nothing with your bar. And so it doesn't surprise me why when, when it gets to those things, nobody knows how to play to. What do I play through a four minor? Why do you think? That's why everybody asks the question, how do you think? Yeah. Because <laughs> really what they want to know is where is all the notes? And so I feel like it's my responsibility, you know, because the other guys that could teach it, unfortunately, have passed on. I'm not saying there are other guys, Tommy White, uh, certainly Terry Crisp, uh, Lloyd, but I've talked to some of the, the people and they don't have the interest to do it. Some, you know, I get it. And I'm not saying it's my it is kind of my calling because I've always taught uh, and no matter how successful I was, I, uh, I want to do it. And, you know, but one of us has got to do it. And that's the way I felt about it. And, and I please don't, your listeners don't take that as being egotistical. It's just that this knowledge is so important to me. It has to be handed down so that when somebody sees that weird contraption in a music store and then they click on the internet, there'll be enough free, you know, I'm putting stuff up there for free as well. And there'll be enough stuff like on the blog and different places that'll state what it is so that uh, the importance of learning those things. And hopefully you and your generation will get out there and teach. And, you know, this all this stuff keeps on moving forward. That's that's my dream, man. I want to see it get in a university. I want to see it get to, uh, you know, there's no reason like you can't have me come to your university. But I, we played with the time jumpers, this community college. And, and the, they took us, it was an art school and it was somewhere in South Carolina. But anyway, we went, to the, they took us around the classrooms and these classrooms, I don't know if this is familiar to you, but it was foreign to me. I saw big flat screen TVs, like one in the front of the class yeah. and one on every corner. And I said, what's that? And they said, oh, that's where the, they're taught. And I said, what do you mean? They said, no, they, there's no teacher in this classroom. They have a, like, I guess Skype or whatever, but they, they get... So everybody can see. Oh, like a telelearning they used to call it? Yeah, telelearning or whatever. I don't know what it's called, but that fascinated me. And I thought, now there's the way to get steel guitar out. I think uh, right now, yeah, it's easier with a guitar. Okay, getting back to your scenario. And you can get the cheap squire. But there's a lot of people, like I see it in the club, man. There, There's two guitar players and two famous guitar players, Vince and, well, there's three, Ranger Doug and, and Andy Reese, and they're playing. And they certainly get their attention, and rightfully so. But there are the people that get intrigued with the steel guitar, and you can see them. They just they're mesmerized. Yeah. And you know, people walk up and they say, "What do them pedals do?" There, with that initial attraction, there's enough for people to want to buy a guitar. But then when they realize there's no common, like everybody used to say, "Go to Jeff Newman." Yeah. Because they at least had that, and now it's been just like you go online. But I, I, uh, you know, I don't. I see emphasis on. Here's an arrangement. Here's a song. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of it. And, and so basically you have to teach yourself and that, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying, um, but to really learn how to play. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Like, here's how to play this song, but you don't learn the logic behind why that works. Yeah. And most people are individuals. I believe this with all my heart. You know, it's like me as a kid at eight years old, I didn't want to play what my cousins were playing. Yeah. So, you know, early on in my life, I wanted to be me. And so I think a lot of people do that, and they, they think, oh, man. Or, or they love the sound of the instrument. I hate that music. I hate that song. So, I mean, you, what are you going to teach, 100,000 songs and in order to find the ones that, to give that person maybe 100 songs they want to learn, yeah. which would have enough musical information in there to get them to become a great player and not give up? To me, that process seems like a long way to get there. And uh, what I'm trying to do is be the glue between all of that, you know, and I urge everybody to get, learn songs and arrangements. And I'm going to teach that as well. And I do teach that, but, but, um, as a teacher, I see a vision and I, and I see the thing that to me that limits the instrument. Cause I have a friend, I'll, I'll tell you this story. Three years ago, he bought a steel, he bought a Fender 400. He's a studio player. And anyway, he, Kenny Greenberg, and he's a very knowledgeable. And first he goes, uh, Boy, and all he wants to really play is Daniel Lenoir stuff. Mm. So he said, man, I just bought me like an eight string. So, you know, we're working a lot of sessions. So I'm, I see him and, you know, a few months later and he says, Hey man, how do you make a dominant seventh on this? And he told me what his pedal setup was and he's got eight strings. And I said, well, like this one, I said, oh, cool, cool, cool. So as he kept on going and I said, well, you know, on a 10 string, every time he would ask me, I'd try to show him like that. He said, yeah, I know it's on there, but it's like 
he just didn't want to commit to it, you know, and it's funny. He's got him a 10 string steel <laughs> and he's like that desire, you know, the stuff he thought he didn't want to learn. Now he's learning. He had watched all the songs. He didn't want to learn any of that. It's like, man, I can't find anything. He was very frustrated. Yeah. I can't find anything. I just want so me because he's a great musician, you know, show me where it diminishes, show me where this is. And, and cause he just wanted to go off and figure out what he wanted to do and not necessarily learn something. So I think that once that gap is filled, then I think it's a, it's an endless thing for the Israel. But I think having said that, <laughs> I think if, you know, nobody taught and all that, there's still going to, the instrument is going to survive because I just think that too many people are in love with it. And uh, I want to see it become more popular, obviously, because for selfish reasons, I want to, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I had a conversation with Buddy Emmons not too long before he died. And he said something that just kind of concerned me. He said, I guess I had a pretty good career, but Buddy was, you know, isolated and he knew people worshiped him and all that. But it was like, you know, and he said a couple of things. Well, they don't care, you know, and it's like, here's this gigantic guy that, you know, because each generation, you know, they don't dig back. You know, you think about it, it's the 90s. It's almost 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, and you're talking about going back in the 60s and 70s and 80s when he was really on top of the mountain. You know, and as a player, he's always stayed there. But I mean, as far as radio re- records and you know, that's a long time ago. And, and it's like, I don't want to see it get forgotten. I don't want, uh, selfishly, I, I hope that uh, everybody likes to feel like they contributed something. And I hope that, you know, my generation of steel players, that we contributed to something. And I want to pass it, what I know on to, to see uh, the, it, I love seeing Robert Randolph yeah, and what he's doing. He's doing exactly what what I, I thought, man, somebody, someday somebody's going to step out and just sing and play like Leon McAuliffe did years ago. That's what Leon did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and Rusty Young, to a certain extent, did it with, with Poco. And, uh, you know, but there's room for more, you know, but not doing what Robert's doing. Let it be a funk guy. Let, a, let some uh, Bruno Mars guy come up, yeah. you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, and didn't let a classical guy do, but I want to see all the, all the genres get filled with at least one star. You know, that, that would be my perfect dream. I'd love to see that. Uh, Paul, I, I generally end these interviews, uh, with the question, what do you predict will be the future of steel guitar? I feel like we've already covered that. <laughs> oh, I think, we uh, but one of the, one of the answers I often get is, uh, you know, when I say, well, where do you think steel guitar is going? People bring up Robert Randolph because they say, well, here's someone who's doing something, you know, completely different. He's he's coming from a sacred steel tradition, yeah. but he's taking it to the next level. And it's often qualified with, not to say that everybody's going to start playing like Robert Randolph, but the idea that people are going to take this instrument and find new applications for it and find new new ways to use it that are surprising and different and are not necessarily so connected to the past, but are informed by the past. Oh, yeah. And Robert has done that. My, my belief, okay, in all of that, and I kind of said that, is that, you know, when Garth Brooks hit, I'll just use Garth Brooks as an example. When he hit, he sold more records in one year than the entire country music field did in 1972. Now, one school of thought is, okay, and the labels did exactly this. Let's get another Garth Brooks. Yeah, you know? yeah. But the truth is that whatever he sold in millions that year, that doesn't mean that there's that many more country music fans. There's that many more Garth Brooks fans. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they want to get another imitation. There was only one Ray Price. There was only one Merle Haggard, one Beatles, one Rolling Stones. They were all totally different from each other. And that's what I want to see. Okay. The formula for Robert Randolph really is this. He took an instrument because he comes out of the sacred seal, that's a blues-based music, and they imitate the human voice. And, and he fused uh, the stylings of uh, rock guitarists like Stevie Ray Vaughan and Buddy Guy and all that stuff into his playing, and which is also, he wasn't the first to do it. I think Chuck Campbell and Calvin Cook, I mean, I don't know my history there, so forgive me if I get this wrong, because I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes in anything that I say. But um, 
he took that and fused it together. But the really secret to his formula is he stepped up to the microphone. Here's my band. Here's, you know, we're doing it. He, he projected himself as a star who played steel guitar. Barbara Mandrell did the same thing when she first started out. Yeah. And, you know, it's happened many times. And she's nothing like Robert Randolph. And Rusty Young did the same thing. You know, but when Rusty stepped up to the microphone, he, he stopped playing steel. And that's why I said, to a certain extent, that's what I meant by that. I don't mean his playing. But Robert hasn't abandoned the steel guitar to step up in front, you know, and, and front a band. Yeah. And so I think that that formula of being an artist, I mean, look at, uh, there's a steelism, he's, uh, uh, Spencer Cullum, yeah. he and his band. Now that's very cool. And he's doing the same thing. He's got a band and they're focused around him. That formula always works. You know, Leon McCall, and it's not anything new. Albino Ray did the same thing. We've always had this. It's not like something new has come along. It's just, it's an old formula that very few have the confidence in their talent. Let's, I won't say they're not as, as talented, but to say, hey, I sing great. And I feel like fronting my own band. And when you front your own band, along with that comes all the economics. Like, how do I feed everybody? Yeah. How do I make this work? That's the, that's the hard part. But uh, so a lot of people just take the easier path of just, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to work for somebody else. Uh, and so that's where I see the future is more people like that stepping up to the plate and deliver what it is. It could be folk music, man. It could be songwriter music. You know, it's going to work no matter what you do, I, I believe. That's a really interesting take on it. I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm a formula guy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you play on records, and I, I don't mean like playing by formula, but one of the things you study if you produce, I produced a band, Sons of the Palomino, with uh, Jeffrey Steele, who's the artist, uh, basically the voice and the writer of the material, and Brandon Hood. We, we did this really cool record all new songs and everything. So I've been studying production. I, at one time, I thought I wanted to write out my days as a producer. And I backed out of that because I saw how much time is involved in it. And I don't think I have that energy. But in doing that, you have to, like you're an engineer, so you study how things, you know, we're analytical. And that leads you to figuring out all the formulas. And that's what I meant by formula. You know, why everybody paid attention to Robert rightfully so, is once you step out to the front of the microphone, that's what human nature is just look at, well, who is this? What's this guy going to do? Yeah. But if you stand off to the right or the left, few people notice you, but it's not to you make that brave step. You know, I thought Buddy Emmons could do it, you know, and he kind of did it with Buddy Emmons sings Bob Wills yeah. record and he sang the whole album. But Buddy, like me, I mean, I told you I thought I'd be Earl Clue, you know, do that whole thing. But I got busy. Buddy was so good, and it's just people were always calling you up and saying, you know, hey, buddy, play on this. And, you know, same way with me and, and Lloyd, I'm sure the same thing, and anybody that's had those opportunities. You know, it's easier to take those calls. It's it's hard to say no to – I can imagine when Ray Charles called Buddy Evans, that would be almost impossible. He loved him. Yeah. Same with me with people, and that takes me out of the loop for – you know, I just didn't get enough time to, to devote – to, to making that move that Robert made, but, but, and not that I can't sing, so I can never do that, but that's where I think the future is. I think somebody will have a vision and, and they'll actually step up and become the artist. I really hope that happens. <laughs> oh, I do too. Did you know that Wayne Newton played steel? No, no. Yeah, he did. He had an afternoon television show. I was just a kid in Detroit and, uh, I didn't know he played steel either. He had a show bud. And he played it and played pretty good, man. Right and I didn't, I thought, you know, cause he plays every instrument. I knew he did the thing that Barbara, you know, all those talented people do, but, uh, you know, he'd switch and play banjo and different things. And, and there he had a steel and I thought, Oh great. I wonder who's playing. And then he played it, you know, it was, it was really cool. That is cool. But, uh, anyway, I was going to ask though, before we wrap up, um, if you had any, uh, upcoming releases or live shows or anything you wanted to mention, uh, I don't even know what I'm doing four hours from now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we're going to do some more dates with Vince in in, uh, in August. You know, he's gonna he has a break away from uh, um, the Eagles for a while, so we're going to go do some dates there and 
And just, uh, I'm just doing a bunch of records. I just did Brett Young and Thomas Rhett. We're going to do another George Strait record. Nice. Well, we'll, we'll keep an ear out for all that stuff. Do you uh, have a, a place online where you post, you know, shows or anything that you have coming up? Uh, probably the blog, the Paul Franklin blog will probably, okay. or not, when I have something cool, I may put it up there so that anybody in the world could see that. That's cool. That, that's probably what I'll do. All right, let's leave it there. And again, a huge thanks to Paul for for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it so much. And I wanted to play a song. So I mentioned before I was lucky enough to get to go see the Time Jumpers when I was in Nashville a couple weeks ago. And uh, one of the songs they did is from their album Kid Sister. This is a song called All Aboard, which is a Paul Franklin composition. Here you go. going to do it for episode 14 of the Pedal Steel Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I did want to say thank you to uh, a few people who have donated. Um, and there's a way to do that. Um, there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, we have a PayPal. It's just uh, straight to the email, which is pedalsteelpodcast at gmail.com. If you feel like you want to donate a few bucks to the show, it's greatly appreciated. Of course, you know, that if you don't, <laughs> no pressure. But uh, I did want to say thank you to Darren, Alan, and Tim, all of whom have thrown a few bucks our way to, uh, you know, help things move along. Basically, it's, you know, every now and then I need to spend a little money on 
Skype credits or a little piece of software. Or, you know, now that I've got a little bit in the account there, I could do some uh, targeted Facebook ads, just get the word out a little bit more about the podcast. So definitely appreciate that. Another thing you can do to, to help us out is uh, if you're in iTunes, you can uh, rate and review the podcast. Always appreciate that. And if you look for the Pedal Steel Podcast on Facebook, go ahead and uh, hit like on that page and you'll be able to see everything everything I post and you know, anytime we have a new episode or anything uh, that I find remotely interesting, I'll put it up there. <laughs> okay, thanks. We'll see you next time.